0: I'm Natasha, and... I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This week's challenge was to submit an application to the Future of Life Institute's world-building contest at worldbuild.ai. Light in my face. Oh my, I got prisms in my face
1: right now. Gosh, are we talking about the prism of the future.
0: <laughs> so we
1: <laughs> this
0: week w- 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 um, we didn't really give a challenge last week. We were like, we're just gonna do this world building thing. So we've been doing this challenge for actually about a month, and the challenge is to imagine a world where AI is in existence, and humans are still alive, and the year is 2045, and everything is good and not dystopian. <laughs> that, that, that is the challenge. So the premise of the contest is the Future of Life Institute, this is my thought about what they're doing, they want to crowdsource ideas from all their amazing readership and patronage to try and figure out how we avoid an AI catastrophe, but also, I think this has something to do with kind of trying to get buy-in for the kind of ins- kinds of institutions that are going to be needed in the future. They're going to be we're going to need oversight institutions as we move towards developing AI. And I feel like, this is to crowdsource ideas for how to get us there. What do you think?
1: I think that's, uh, well, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, and some of it is a little bit of uh, self-propagation as an organization thinking about the future. And But realistically, uh, as I see this as an opportunity to take, you know, hopefully people with interest in these things thinking about the best ways that we can kind of cybernetically uh, alter the future such that we don't become, well, dystopian slaves to the technology we've designed.
0: (laughs) They said right away, it's not dystopic. Like this is, things are good. But (laughs) when I read that, I, I think of dystopia as a state of mind. Like it's, we always set out for utopia. And dystopia is kind of like, the byproduct of, of utopic dreaming. And mm. dystopia is really all about how we view the current scenario. When, like people who are born today would not view today as a dystopia. But if you took people from 50 years ago and showed them a terrible video about just about anything that's happening, like if you show them the, the social network, for example, uh, that film, that would look dystopic, would it not? Like it, it looks terrifying.
1: Well, it actually is dystopic. It's the kind of thing that we are. So we are like the uh, the, the lobster in the uh, in the pot that's uh, progressively being boiled, and uh, we don't even necessarily know it. There is a kind of uh, dystopia going on already. It's just that we've normalized the dystopia.
0: I disagree, and also the analogy is a frog in the pot, sir. Uh,
1: anyway there was uh there was some, some some study where they took some uh they took ants and they put them in a jar and you take the lid off and they just hang there so even though it's better they don't even realize that they could actually escape
0: Yeah, that was fleas but but okay and <laughs> oh, oh,
1: oh, hey look <laughs> it's frogs
0: lobsters I mean, fleas ants
1: all the same look is- if it's not humid it's all the same crap it's- <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get hate for that. But for me, when, when I look at uh, what's happening, the worst dystopia is always somehow, um, well, war with, uh, with our creations and then our ultimate subjugation to those things. Um, and at the moment, uh, we are at a point in the war where we are not fully acknowledging that we're even fighting, we're in something. We know it, but we're not doing much about it. And the degree to which we're controlled is actually uh, dystopic.
0: I would argue that we've always been controlled by something that humanity, knowingly or otherwise, has never been as free as everybody likes to pretend we are. There was the monarchy, there was God, there were all these things that we were enslaved by, you know, mentally, physically, or otherwise. Now we're enslaved by technology, or we're on the path to to technological enslavement. What's the difference between being enslaved by monarchy or being enslaved by machines or being enslaved by corporate interests? What's the difference?
1: Hmm. The difference is, my dear, that. (laughs) For instance, the queen wasn't in your business even while you were sleeping. And so, so monarchies had control over some things, and societies have controls over some things. But we regularly submit to certain kinds of human relational uh, constructs that are, let's say, you know, hierarchical. From the time we are born, we tend to think that we are going to escape tyranny of all kinds by. The use of ever advancing technology, but we find that more and more we're so reliant on it that you know, and this is a maybe a Kaczynski kind of thing that it is infiltrating every moment of your life, such that you are less and less capable of doing much with your free time, such that people don't relate to each other anymore in meaningful ways, uh, and it's that dichotomy. That's that t- for me. That's the point at which we are. Now truly enslaved, and maybe there's an argument that so that it's a progression, yeah. but that the inability to have your time and your relations be uninterrupted by things that are fighting for your attention and thereby diluting your most important relationships is a kind of enslavement nah. that um, that I don't know, like de what uh, decenters. <laughs> got to. You got to use the uh, CRT garbage language, uh, but it decenters the human relationship in favor of the relationship with the corporate.
0: So I disagree. I think if you like, there's always been demands are, on our attention. The demand on your attention was survival. This is just a different kind of survival that we all have to undergo now. So I think previously. If a motherfucking saber-toothed tiger comes into your damn uh, cave, then you got to tear yourself away from centering on your familial (laughs) and human relations Uh through the fight or flight. So this is perhaps just another step in evolution, which I think this is our constant argument we have, is that the technological progression we see is just, in my opinion, another step in our evolution. Whereas you see it as like the boogeyman.
1: Oh, okay. Well, let's see. So (laughs) here's why it's a boogeyman, madame. Uh, The reason it's the boogeyman is uh, the number of saber-toothed tigers attacking you was far scarcer than uh, the number of ads coming at you. And so if I had to fend off 150 saber-toothed tigers a day, the likelihood I would survive to the next day would be zero. Uh, But I have to fight off wars for my attention so continually now that we now live in a perpetually stressful environment.
0: Okay, so first of all, there's a thing called habituation to stress. So we humans are very good at adapting to constant stress. Our, Our cortisol levels no longer get peaked. And they, they don't stay high if we're healthy and, and we're doing well. Now, if you have certain mm-hmm. stressful events that, that have left a mark, so to speak, on you at impressionable times, then you don't habituate as well. So it's possible that uh, you know kind of uh, maladaptive, stressful traumas can prevent you from habituating, but we're not sitting here on high alert with, with high cortisol all the time. And if you're comparing cortisol levels from now to 10,000 BC, it's gonna be way different. It's gonna be, the patterns of, of stress are way different because the stressors are way different. We're, we're, we got way off on dystopia. Yeah, we got, we we got off on
1: a whole, uh, a, a whole thing. It's, uh, it's as, you, as usual, it's very fun to uh, uh, watch your arguments crumble before my coffee.
0: I don't think yeah. they did. I don't think my arguments.
1: Probably, it, well, they probably didn't. They, they hold up. But, oh, so okay.
0: let's talk about, let me, let me, let me lay down the rules for this competition, because by, when this episode okay. airs, dear listeners out there, you have two days to be able to put together an application. So here are the ground rules um, from uh, the Future of Life Institute. You can find them at worldbuild.ai forward slash rules. The year is 2045 AGI or artificial general intelligence or strong AI has existed for at least five years technology is rapidly advancing and AI is transforming the world sector by sector. The EU US and China have managed a steady if uneasy power equilibrium, India, Africa and South America are quickly on the rise. Despite ongoing challenges, there have been no major wars or global catastrophes. The world is not dystopian. (laughs) So so those are the rules. Um,
1: Zero black swan events in this uh, imaginary fairy tale future.
0: That's not what they said. It didn't say there's no no black swan events. They said things are chill, like we're all right. So what, what you have to... Put forth for this application is uh, four parts. The first of which is a timeline, which you have to have entries for every year between now and 2045, that give two events, like you know this was invented or that was invented, and one data point, which could be like GDP is you know up by 25 percent. The second part of the application, two stories from a day in the life in 2045. The third component, a series of answers to a set of questions or prompts. How is it safe and controlled? How is power held? How have we avoided major arms races? How has AI changed decision-making, global distribution of wealth? What sectors have been affected? What are the social institutions? So these kinds of questions. And then the fourth component is an original non-text media piece. So a piece of art, video, music, something like that, to be able to relay what your world looks like to everybody who can't read good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But what this doesn't address is the the people who are auditorily or visually impaired. And I feel like, um, you know, this is very ableist of this (sighs) organization. Um.
0: (laughs) Unbelievable. We need a braille piece of (laughs) me.
1: That's that's right. You know, it's still a dystopia for those people.
0: (laughs) That's my point is like dystopia is a matter of perspective. The future is now, it's just not here for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like expectations are the mother of disappointment here because if we expect things that are unrealistic by 2045, then we are going to be sorely disappointed. I think we... Not only that, but the hubris of this con- contest. It's incredibly difficult to, for, for very intelligent people who we hope are doing this contest to be able to make a prediction knowing where things are headed, knowing the realistic implications of where we are today. Like we were, you know, one of the challenges we had last night, we were talking about we think for our world, we need internet for most people. That's like a big deal. And we were talking about the, um, what is it, HR 1743, 1783, (laughs) the bill that's in the house right now, we need that passed. And, uh, but we don't, you know, we had to look into kind of like what exactly that bill entailed. And ultimately we need internet for all. And we're like the timeline in which we need it for things to be cool by 2045,
1: Right. So we're looking at a very compressed time frame. 20 years is kind of a blip, it, letting your imagination run free, but then also figuring out that your imagination has to operate within some finite and bounded time frame was uh, is a bit of a struggle.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I mean we talked about was daunting was we talked about the doom and gloom. Every single person that I tapped about this, like I made an Instagram story and said, "What do you think?" and left it open to people's answers, which I'll include some here. They, people were like, <laughs> and it's, and it's gonna be good. So there was like this big doom and gloom mentality that the next 20 years are gonna be horrific. So that was a big obstacle to overcome, I would say. And then another obstacle that we have had to overcome in our own group, which we have a pretty decent sized group. And we, we tried to keep it open to other people's opinions that wanted to participate, but obviously we needed people who was gonna do the work. Get your fucking ass up and work. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. That's you have to, so true. You have to surround yeah. yourself with people that want to work. But the other thing was defining what we want. So we talked about human rights and freedom. What does freedom look like? What does privacy look like? And so we had to discuss things like, well, do we want to have a social credit system like, they, like they're working towards in China? Is that freedom? What kind of freedom would that allow? What kind of privacy would that restrict? What's the difference between the U.S. and China right now in terms of personal freedom and privacy? We had some disagreements, but we Um, got through those disagreements by defining words like freedom.
1: Something memorable to me is we were having a discussion um, in which we were talking about Uh, how there are aspects of uh, Chinese and American societies that make them roughly similar in some ways. And I think one of the important things that uh, came out of that conversation was, in one, you're talking about outlier scenarios, and then comparing them to the norm in another, and that you can't necessarily reason that they are equivalent, you have to make sure you're not reasoning from outlier scenarios to draw your comparisons.
0: Yes, I think we were talking about national security and privacy, saying that the NSA has access to everybody's information and yada, yada, yada. The only difference is that the NSA is not going to come beat down your door if you start talking about COVID. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, we've seen Perfect. this happening in China at one point or another, where I had a friend tell me there's like no cases of COVID because they've had to declare basically everywhere they are. And then when they were in a movie theater, and when someone got COVID from that movie theater, everyone's on quarantine. And so you can argue whether or not this is going to improve safety and you know mortality and things like that. Absolutely. But at what cost? So if you value safety over freedom or privacy, then you're fine there. But if you value freedom um, over safety, then you are not going to like that kind of a society. And this is the alignment problem with artificial intelligence. And that's to say that we want artificial intelligence to be designed with human values in mind, but it's almost impossible to align an artificial intelligence with human values because everyone's values are different.
1: Well, maybe the thing to do then is to think about what values would be human universals. You know, avoid so, so it might not necessarily be the safety versus freedom argument, it may be something. Else.
0: I don't know. I mean, these are basic philosophical problems. You think about like the trolley problem, for example, like um, in, in what circumstance would it be better to kill more people with the trolley problem? Like, you know, there are certain circumstances, but everybody's thoughts are different around that.
1: What is it that you... Is it a utilitarian thing? Are you willing to take on the guilt of having made a decision even if the right uh, call for you would have been utilitarian? I think it's more complex even than just a philosophical position. So I think a lot of people think that they think things when they can keep them at a respectable enough distance for them to be ideals in moments when you're confronted with the most extreme existential threat. Um, you are likely to become something more feral, something more impulsive, because you're going to do the thing that's requisite in the moment for survival. I would think that some decisions would be radically different from what idealists and uh, armchair philosophers would would imagine.
0: Which is exactly why programming an AI to do what we would do is almost an impossible task. This is why the alignment problem has not yet been solved because it's not possible to solve it in my opinion, at least not, it's probably not possible to solve the alignment problem without AI or at least quantum computing. And I don't even know if it's possible to solve it then because we're talking about unraveling the black box of human cognition, human emotions. I mean, we have no insight into our own psyche, virtually no insight into the decisions we make. How are we supposed to program uh, an intelligent entity to do things on our behalf when we don't even know why we do things ourselves.
1: So if you were in a, if you're in a therapeutic uh, setting, let's say you have some problem, it's, it's deep seated and you're working through it, um, you will come to insights about your nature uh, that you would not have otherwise have gotten to because you're deeply focused on it. But you're still kind of telling yourself a story and it may not necessarily be true, uh, that those are the reasons why you may never arise of it an ultimate truth, but you can also um, convince yourself through reasoning that it makes enough sense that you will believe it and thereby act upon it. And so there are levels of, um, well, self-occlusion, maybe? I don't know, I'm trying to think of like the like right, the right word for this. Uh, and, and also levels of self-deception that make you think that you've arrived at something true. Uh, and it only matters that you believe the story perhaps well enough that you can change your actions based on what you think is an understanding of yourself, uh, but still you are illusory to yourself.
0: Absolutely. And then imagine another entity comes in and makes a decision for you that you would have made yourself but you didn't. And so now you have to reason your way and logic your way through that entity's decision. Even though you would have arrived at the same position, it wasn't your choice. So this, Uh this is where it's gonna be dystopian no matter what, from some angle to some degree. Anytime we're removing decision-making power from our own hands, we are going to feel some pull of dystopia. Right. The other challenge of having this, um, ha- having a, a large group participate in this, is is agreeing on this. I think our application in general had a a strange mix of like libertarian collectivism.
1: I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, like almost like uh, what would that? What do you call it? like a uh, almost like a kind of anarcho syndicalism? Maybe?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: that's kind of yeah. what I what I was thinking. Yeah. <clears throat> a a position I didn't think that I would ever come to.
0: Yeah. I cannot wait to read all the applications, but one thing we didn't talk about was transcendentalism at all in our application. I think because first of all, I think, because if we are to reach that, it's not going to be for another century or two, at least. Um,
1: Can you define uh, what you're, when you're saying transcendence, what do you mean by that right now?
0: What I mean by that is being able to preserve consciousness.
1: Oh, okay. So that's, well, isn't that
0: the singularity? The technological singularity is achieving Hmm. above human intelligence.
1: Okay. But I I I thought for some reason that also included like uh, the capacity to Upload your consciousness and replicate, like your uh, connectomics or something of that sort, that would make you, uh, you know, potentially infinitely iterable through machine, despite your body's demise or something like that. Yeah,
0: I think the technological singularity would include all of that, but it's it's implied that I mean it's after the moment of technological singularity, but I don't think it's defined in it. But that it's it's a massive term. But then you also talk about the singularity at the beginning of the universe, mm-hmm. which is what you know makes everything occur. <clears throat> right, right. So I think that's the definition of singularity is like the moment at which all the things are possible. I, I, have a, I have
1: a bit of an issue with this idea of people living in perpetuity uh, through machine uh, replication. And that is, that doesn't necessarily allow for novelty. Um, so, for instance, uh, you and I are of an age, right? Uh, and we're coming about in this time, uh, but you know, we're not uh, we're not the youth anymore. We're not necessarily going to be. Uh, don't put me and you in, in the, the same radical. bucket.
0: Don't uh, put me and you in the same bucket. You are uh, okay. You, I have a ten year old. Like you're in a different bucket.
1: My, I guess my my point is that uh, the kinds of things that would ordinarily happen to advance civilization don't come. From old motherfuckers, old wow. motherfuckers are trying are, are holding things in position because they cannot adapt to things anywhere near as quickly as the young. So if if you and I live in perpetuity and our consciousness is able to inform, you know the the uh, the collective into the future. We may be in some way stifling the kinds of innovation and change that would have come if we if we were to allow ourselves uh, to remain mortal, because there is always this oscillation between the old uh, and its stability and the youth and its revolutionary and it's uh, it's like the revolutionary then becomes stable, but then new uh, revolutionaries come through. But you know, the old motherfuckers got to go. They but they're not going to for so- they're not controlling things anymore.
0: but they're, they're not going to. We're an aging population. The old motherfuckers are not going anywhere. In fact we're going to have more old motherfuckers than ever. And I would argue that the stability uh, in this era of technological insecurity is requisite. And so I think we're looking at kind of an aging population as a bad thing, but perhaps the aging population is what what drives stability for all this radical young thought that's going to be popping up here.
1: Oh, I I agree. It goes back to the dichotomy in American society. It's it's the strong liberalization versus the conservative bent. And then you've got things that need to be stable versus or supporting, let's say. I shouldn't even say versus, because I think structuring the conversation as a war is part of the problem. It's not. In order to make progress and to make sure that it's sustainable and not catastrophic, you need something stabilizing from which to architect that, that future. And so,
0: yeah, yeah, it's, it's tacking along a trajectory. Have you seen altered carbon on? No,
1: no, you, I think you've recommended this to me and I, I, and I haven't gotten to it yet.
0: It's one of my favorites. They have a problem that you didn't define. And the problem is that inequity. So inequity is something we had to address in this application as well. Yes. because uh, this is a major issue. Um, it, I mean, it always has been, but it's in the forefront of a lot of conversations now. What is the world going to look like in terms of income inequality and wealth distribution? But in Altered Carbon, people can resleeve themselves basically. Like you can upload your consciousness into a new body and the future w- will not be applicable to everyone. And some of the stuff we talked about in our application, we took the Tesla model of saying like the rich have to adopt it first. In a capitalistic society, you need the wealthy to adopt something so that it can become cheaper and accessible to everyone first. But that cre- creates inequality.
1: Well, it, well, it, it, well, it it both creates it, yes, but it but it also. But it also mitigates it. Not only so, the the wealthy have access to things, uh, you know, sooner than everyone else, including everyone, you know, at the bottom. Let's say eighty five percent of society, because most people will never be able to afford early access to these things. But they also are a testing ground for whether or not universal dissemination is going to uh, be sensible. Early novel adoption also uh, is a kind of laboratory.
0: It's a piss poor laboratory because your populace and your sample size is skewed. So just because something works well in this population of people like with a high socioeconomic status does not mean that it's gonna translate well to the rest of the world.
1: So, okay, so, Disagreeing with you and and not a, such a fierce way, but uh, you know enough to say, can you elaborate on? So, is there something adopted by the wealthy that became mass distributed that you can think of that Sometimes. was catastrophic?
0: Sometimes, you, according to you, according to your own, you know, technological uh, fears and trepidation cell phones I mean if you remember who had the bang the dang uh I was in Kenny Rogers Jaguar and he had a car phone (laughs) (laughs) like in like the early 90s I think it was um, early late 80s um but yeah so looking at how the wealthy used cell phones gave zero indications of what would become you know what I mean Mm, so
1: I'm, I'm so I'm okay. So I'm not so sure that that's the case. So a lot of what wealthy were using, the wealthy were using cell phones for, would have been, I'm, I'm I'm connecting to someone in order to make a deal on something or something of that sort. What are we what are we doing now? Hey, look, I have this. I have this thing. I'm going to sell it. Uh, I, I I want to uh, arrange to be on someone's podcast, or um, I would like to. It, 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 The point is it's an extension of commerce and um, we took an elite group of people who were doing that anyway, and that's part of why they're wealthy, and then distributed it to the masses so that they themselves could emulate that pattern of life. And that makes it possible for them to be more engaged economically. And and so I, I don't know if it's entirely a bad laboratory.
0: It is a bad laboratory because it's not predictive. You don't want to use a non-representative sample. You need a representative sample. So the best laboratory for determining how things will extrapolate would be to release technology to a wide variety of people. That would be the best way to predict what would happen.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, not disagreeing that it would that there would be a better way. Uh, I also think that because the technology comes out of corporate sectors uh and the stuff is experimental there isn't uh, there, there's there's a there's a better way to model an experiment but there's probably not a better way to get things into mass distribution
0: i think and that's the part that's the challenge of this application with being realistic like we're not starting right. over and making the world from scratch like there's no world in which that uh maybe there is some world in the infinite possibility of things but it's <laughs> exorbitantly unlikely that that company will be like you know what we're gonna we're gonna make this um we're gonna give this to all the poor people first we're gonna just go into everybody's home who makes less than thirty thousand dollars a year and just give them all a ho- that ain't gonna happen so we can't pretend like it's going to happen we have to no, we, have, no. we had to craft our application with reality in mind <laughs> Yeah. And
1: that's one of that was actually one of the more fun things to do. This has to happen in order for this to happen. And then we build this concatenation that results in uh, the, the technology and the living circumstances to be present for us to have the kind of life that that, that we imagine. We're imagining a future, but we also have to imagine future predecessory things that get, that get us there. And that's, I think the most fun uh, aspect yeah. of this for me is like, okay, well, How does that happen? Why does that happen? And then we go back and forth a little bit on whether or not this makes sense at this time or that time, how many years needs to separate something before it makes sense that it would happen. Um, I think this is the most interesting aspect of the the entire uh, intellectual process.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I especially like, I mean, so this is a good way to talk about our process, which I, I think in the very beginning, what I said to everyone is we need to think aspirational. Let's first imagine the vibe of our world. And so we answered a couple questions and then we wrote our stories. You and I both wrote our stories to give um, everyone kind of a feel for the world we wanna live in and what it feels like. And then we work backwards from there. So yes. we, we, we took like an ideal, like one thing we, that we have in our application that we believe is really important is modular farming. To eliminate food insecurity, We need a combination of kind of the factory farming model that we have now, but also some kind of homesteading collectivist AI assisted modular farming. So we had to work backwards from that and figure out, well, how do we get there? And so we had to think about Okay, will this legislation pass? Or like, and thinking from a U.S. centric position, obviously, how will let this legislation pass in a Republican-controlled legislative body? So we had to think about politics, and and this will get worse before it gets better, that kind of a right. thing. But one of the things that we found out last night from another com- another group that's competing is not everybody is looking through such a, a broad lens.
1: I, I, well, I was astonished at that because I, I mean, certainly you could take one sector and radiate out all kinds of uh, consequences that do help to arrive at, at, at a future that you could imagine. But um, and and one of the things that we're going to struggle with is we're looking at such a broad view and we're taking into account so many different uh, you know it's so many different nodes. Uh, of things that are happening in society and the ways that technologies are going to converge to give us this life, that we won't have anywhere near as much detail on any one particular thing. Uh, and so this is, the, this is the argument, and maybe this is a consequence of, of how you and I think, because we're both very big generalists. The person who uh, came into our uh, Our meeting last night was clearly very specifically focused on something uh, and could probably do that in a way that you and I probably never could. I really struggle to keep my thinking uh, microscopic.
0: This is what I struggled with in the lab. As a bench scientist, the way things work in kind of middle tier biomedical laboratories is you have a set of techniques at your disposal and these techniques are cost prohibitive You really can't just go learn a new technique tomorrow and then have a whole set of things done. I was on a TikTok live two days ago describing like the last set of experiments I did before I left and how prohibitive they were to learn how it took me weeks and weeks to learn these techniques all by myself. And I got very discouraged. So within a lab, you have a set of techniques and it's a shitty way to do science, but it's the way we do it because we have to survive. You basically come up with questions that you can answer using those techniques. And I guarantee you any, any PI that sees this, anyone who gets and writes grants will lie their ass off and say, we don't do it that way. Intellectual dishonesty. That's absolutely how you do it because you know, within your lab, you have a plate reader, you have a PCR machine, you have access to a certain animal model. You're not going to all of a sudden start go, going to work on a when you use, you know, vertebrates or even a very specific rats versus mice, you're not going to start working on mice. I always thought of the best possible experiment to do to answer the question, even if I didn't have access to the technique, I thought I'll fucking learn it. And I did, I brought several new techniques to the lab that I was in, which is why I think I had a lot of success, but also I had a really good environment where, where my PI allowed me to do that. And where I reached out to certain individuals at other institutions. And I said, Hey, I know you guys have tandem mass spec. Can I use it? Can you come teach me how to do it? So that's where science was very collaborative. And I imagine this application has to be the same way. I want to imagine the the world in its entirety. I don't want to just zoom in on one piece of what the future looks like because the rest of the shit could be burning down.
1: I think that's the goal. You and I both wrote stories and, and they're, they're different in ways that are really complementary and help to flesh out kind of what, what the world we imagine will look like. But you could not do that from one point.
0: Yep. And the other problem is that so many things are connected. Like we talked about web three and web three is hugely dependent on blockchain and our modular farming is hugely dependent upon the blockchain. And so all of the things that we designed are very interconnected. And I think it's interesting because we're very interested in complexity theory, you and I, and uh, we, we understand how systems are integrated, but you and I, I think are different than most, I don't want to call them intellectuals. Let's call them like academic elite, the type of people who will put forth an application thinkers in this world. Mm -hmm. If you think about the way that we have bred thinkers, we have bred them to be siloed. So if I were to continue in my academic pursuit, I would be hugely focused probably on dopaminergic systems in the ventral tegmental area. And my entire um, intellectual readings, discourse presentation and work would be about, about that. And I didn't read any books when I was in grad school, when I got out of grad school, Mm -hmm. boy, oh my God. I was like, (laughs) you know, I had never really read any philosophy. And this is a problem I think with the siloed way that we create intellectuals today. So, It may be easy for old academic neuroscientists me to imagine an entirely health and science based timeline, because I would have been so wrapped up in that world that I could have told you all the nitty gritty. Like right now, I have quite a bit of knowledge about things that are happening in the clinical trial space over at least the next five, five years or so. So I could probably tell you the series of events that are going to happen in that sector but if I had spent all of my time looking in that sector, I, I wouldn't have a clue what's going on with Web3. we Wouldn't have a clue what's going on with blockchain, a clue what's going on with any kind of geopolitical events. Right. It's, it's a trade-off. And so with this contest, they get the best of both worlds. They get the generalists, but I, I have a feeling they're going to have quite a bit more siloed focused applications than what I thought. I It didn't occur to me that that would be true, but now- I'm gonna wager. I'm gonna wager it's true. Yeah,
1: given the nature of many of the people and the backgrounds of many of the people that we we saw just on the uh, on the Discord, I would say that is probably true. We may, for instance, have things in our timeline that say, "Well, this happens, this happens, this happens," but for those things to happen, underneath that is a particularist who's going to say, "Well, these five things have to happen for this one to happen, and so forth."
0: I just had a brilliant idea, and if anyone from Future of Life listens to this podcast, bring me on. I'll help you figure this one out. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm thinking if you've read the hunger games, they have this thing called the quarter quell and the quarter quell basically takes all the champions and has them compete against each other. But instead of competing against each other, what if we had a quarter quell where we took very generalist applications and mix them up with people who were very specific and, and take the timelines and elaborate them out even further to be like, how did we get to this end point? And then you take all the expertise and you mix together all those thoughts and ideas and come up with pathways to get there. Ooh, I like oh. it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that may be the that may be the the way this winds up uh, playing out. And it, it would be really nice and awesome to think and non-hubristic, I must say, <laughs> such brilliant overarching thinking like ours winds up leading the way for the particularists wow. to really play around. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Here. Wow.
0: No, no <laughs> ego whatsoever involved in that, that statement. So, so,
1: somebody had to say it. I mean, I've got to, I've got to have a bit of
0: true. It's, this is show business right here. Yeah, <laughs> and
1: and, and no, but nobody does any of this. If you don't have a little bit of like, Hey, I think I've got a great idea.
0: That's the thing I wanted to talk about. Like the hubris to do this. I have had, I've, I've been struggling with, And looking back on all that we've done, I have had moments where I'm like, who, who am I to say this? And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who think like, oh, I love thinking about this stuff, but they don't feel smart enough, good enough, knowledgeable enough to do this stuff. And, and I have to tell myself and these people as well that like, just do it because you don't know what different insights you're gonna be contributing. Yeah, okay, there might be rocket scientists doing this, but there also might be a landscaper who is thinking about horticulture in a way, like knows, I was just reading about greenho- greenhouses, like a modular greenhouse system that I wanna get, um, that, that the rocket scientists ain't even thought about. And so, right. I mean, the beauty of crowdsourcing is the, cornucopia of thought that will hopefully come from this. And I, yeah. I, I love it. I, I'm, um, I'm in the Heterodox Academy. And I was talking with one of my fellow writers in this group about grassroots initiatives and how you get people within an organization who subscribe to an ideology or enjoy a perspective given by one of these NGOs how do you get them to participate? And this, this is a way you get people to participate. This is brilliant. Hats off. Yeah.
1: Being able to take all of those submissions and analyze them really is a kind of human uh, super intelligence. There was something that I'd read about many, many moons ago in which uh, they took like a a very smart person, let's say by some measure, and then like an average collective and gave them problems to solve. And very often, no matter how much smarter the individual was, the collective came up with more accurate or better. In a way, that's exactly what's going on. We are collectivizing human intelligence to imagine a better future for all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, that might even support my argument about multiple intelligences somewhere down the road. <laughs> There's a whole lot of bullshit going on up in there.
1: <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait, but we really need, we need somebody. Uh, maybe we need to crowdsource this. We need somebody who can actually moderate uh, a, a, a discussion between us on those things such that we you know, arrive at your ultimate defeat.
0: Um, <laughs> wrong (laughs) but no I do want to say I do want to say that um doing this with a team first of all I'm just like so I'm I'm gonna say I'm so blessed I'm so blessed to have the gang like this little group of people who want to work and do shit through book club um, mostly through Instagram and social media this is why social media is not necessarily entirely dystopian because the enrichment of my own life, anecdotally, through social media, I wouldn't have you. Right. If it weren't for Instagram, we met on Instagram through your crazy yeah. shit posting. <laughs> or mine. Theory Gang was a party of one. And now I feel like Theory Gang is like, you know, taking on a life of uh, many, many, many hearts as one. Yeah. I see social media as having a lot of possibility. And one of the platforms that I see interesting possibility in uh, as a as an initial version is TikTok. Um, okay. Um, where I was recording, I was just basically on live all day long on TikTok, but I was making the, the media piece. And I was looking at all these clips from my life, from Jesse's life from various other clips that people have sent us. And I was so emotional. It may, it got me in my feelings, but. um.
1: Well, good. That's a good place to be.
0: Yeah. I got a TikTok account way back when, and I won't go too far into it, but I had a very negative perception of TikTok, but I have started to see uh, a little bit of light through the clouds. Okay. So our next challenge will be I have amassed over a thousand followers on TikTok. So I have been permitted to <laughs> do a live stream. So, my next challenge for you is to go on TikTok and peruse TikTok because I know you've never been on it. So, that's step one. And two, do a live and go live with at least five people and try okay. to learn from them what, what they like about TikTok, all the positive benefits. Um, why they do it, how much money they make in these live matches and uh, learn as much as you can and bring your learnings back for all of these good people <laughs> who are interested in making money on TikTok. I posted on my TikTok, I said, whoa, after I learned all that, I said, do y'all know how much money people make on here? Do you want to know? And people were, the, the response was overwhelming. People were like, yes, tell us, tell us everything you learned. Yeah. So people want to know what the fuck's up with TikTok lives.
1: Okay, as someone who was uh, an, an avid TikTok uh, basher, this will be uh, an exceptionally experimental thing for me. But uh, as uh, with anything, uh, I'm always up for the challenge.
0: I'm excited. I'm excited. Like, I feel like our challenges are getting weirder and more tangible, slightly more tangible.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this, uh, the world building is really the first piece where we've done something outside of the podcast itself, that is, that is creative. We didn't just, you know, read something and talk philosophically about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, would Thomas Sowell call what we did before, like the intellectual, intellectualism? Were you, were you part of the book club when we did Thomas Sowell's intellectual
1: No, I, I came, I came after, I think I was aware beforehand.
0: I had a big realization about, about Thomas Sowell, and I didn't hate him as much after reading this. I didn't never hate him, but I had this like perception of Thomas Sowell but when we read Intellectuals in Society, I realized what he was saying. And what he was saying is that we have an overabundance of academic elites who merely read and regurgitate and posture on ideas with zero consequence in the world for the ideas that they put forth. And so in reading this, I was very curious about what he meant by an intellectual. I'm like, am I an intellectual? And maybe I am now, but he meant an intellectual is someone who does not really create. They they merely write and read and regurgitate versus like an engineer is building or a scientist is experimenting. Um, They're doing something tangible in the world. But like, what about a physicist who is, is math a physical experiment? Like is math, um, if someone who's solving a mathematical theorem Different than someone who is reading Lacan, and so much. I disagree so much. I disagree so much. Five minutes later, talking about Lacan amounts to absolutely nothing, but um, <laughs> so maybe we are moving out of our intellectual phase into the uh hands on phase of syllogism. Oh, it, is,
1: it is the next uh... step. <laughs> If you use your hands.
0: No, I'm never, I'm never. no, no, Conjuring the jism.